All right, that's fair. Nice to see you all. Hey, we are, uh, we are continuing in our summer series. We're in a series called The Proverbial Life, and we're looking at wisdom as it's revealed in the scriptures and specifically in Proverbs, although we're moving around a little bit. I want to give you a, a fair warning this morning. We're going to move fast, and we're going to be moving through a lot of different passages, and so if you're the kind of person that's willing, I'd say this is a good one to take some notes in. I'm going to give you some references that we're going to move through kind of quickly. In the, in the seat back in front of you, there's actually a card that's kind of a connection thing, but if you flip it over, uh, there's a place to take notes. It might be helpful if you're the kind of person that will go back and look at some of this, you might write some of it down. We talked in our first uh, session in this series, we talked about proverbial wisdom and what wisdom is. We talked about the fact that, that wisdom isn't just knowing things, it's not just knowledge, but it's the way we apply that knowledge. It's knowing who God is and what his expectation is for us, and then having the courage to actively obey, that having the courage to, to enact the things that God has called us to. Last week we talked about proverbial folly, kind of the, uh, the, the, the opposite side of the same coin, what it means to be foolish and what foolishness looks like so that we can be on guard against it. This morning we're going to be talking about proverbial faith, which is an interesting topic considering that for what it's worth, the book of Proverbs doesn't actually talk or use the word faith. Uh, the word that's used most frequently to talk about faith in the book of Proverbs is the, is the word trust. And we do see that certainly in Proverbs 3, which we read just a moment ago. This idea of trust. Proverbs 3 is a call from, uh, from a father to a son. He's trying to remind him about the most important things. We remember even from our study two weeks ago that in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's our starting point. That's our point of origin. Fear of God, our view of God, our reverent respect and understanding of God is the place from which all of our wisdom is built or else there is no wisdom, right? If we don't start there, wisdom is impossible. And so now in Proverbs chapter three, Solomon is reaffirming some things. He starts here at the beginning in verse one of saying, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. You can, uh, you know, this being Father's Day, if you're a dad in the room or a mom in the room, you know that there are these kind of core principles, key things that you've tried to invest in your children, that you've said again and again, they know them already, but it always behooves uh, us to kind of repeat them again. You know, you keep coming back and saying some of the same stuff. I remember when I was teaching my son Jack, my oldest son, when I was teaching him to drive, um, if you've ever taught a child to drive, that's a terrifying thing, isn't it? It's like scarier than all the roller coasters at Six Flags. Um, you realize as you're teaching your children to drive an automobile that you can't possibly teach them everything. You know, you, you're not going to be able to teach them everything, so you have to teach them the core things. Like you, we would go to, uh, at the time we were living in Long Beach, so we'd go to Long Beach City College where they have a big parking lot around their stadium, and we'd just sort of drive around. We had this little Honda Fit, stick shift, you know, it's basically like a go-kart. And uh, we'd go sit there and we'd park and we'd back up and we'd turn around and, you know, I'm trying to teach him the core, you know, like make sure you check your blind spots, make sure your mirror's in the right place. Don't go too fast. Look before you pull out. You know what I mean? Make sure that you ha have, uh, when you're backing up, don't trust that little, that little TV monitor. That thing can't be trusted. Put your arm across the seat and look behind you. For goodness sake, look where you're going, right? And I can impart all these things into my son and I can say, this is how you do it. These are the essentials you don't want to forget. 
But there still is nothing in the world like getting in the car with your son behind the wheel for the first time. How many of you have done that before? You remember that first time you got into the car with your child and they were the one that was operating the car like on a city street? I wish I had video of that trip. We just drove to the grocery store. Uh, I'm sure that we were probably only driving five miles an hour, but it felt like 80. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm white knuckled on the seat rest. I'm like on the verge of tears the whole time. I, I realized as we're driving to the grocery store that I forgot to tell them you have to slow down when you go around a corner. So I'm pretty sure we did that like Dukes of Hazard thing on two wheels every time we turn. Um, I, I, there were several moments where I had to like suppress the urge to scream in bloody terror. You know what I'm saying? Um, it was just a kind of a mortifying thing. And, and I find myself repeating to him, hey, don't forget, <clears throat> check your mirrors, check your blind spot, make sure you're paying attention. Don't look down at the radio. You know, there's all these core things that you repeat, things that are essential. It's interesting that the writer here, Solomon, writing to his son, or writing to young men, is saying, there's a core thing here you don't wanna miss, don't forget it. He says, my son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Why, because there's a promise here. You know, if you were with us last week, uh, Cody was talking about folly, and in the course of his teaching, one of the things he said is that there's much in the book of Proverbs that is um, kind of a general understanding, that in some ways it sort of gives a general idea for what life can be like and what it should be like, but that not everything in the book of Proverbs is a promise. Um, One of the things, as I, I was listening to the message on my drive home from Hume Lake on Friday night, I will say that he referred to Proverbs 3 as something that isn't a promise, but is a probability. I'll tell you, uh, no offense to Cody, that isn't true, right? In Proverbs chapter three, verse five, what we have is a very clear and concise promise from God about, about what will happen when we trust in him with our whole heart. When we don't lean on our own understanding, when we acknowledge him in all of our ways. And we know this isn't just sort of a general guideline, that it's not just a probability, because what we're seeing here in Proverbs chapter three is a summary or a paraphrase of what we've already learned. If you were a Hebrew person, you would have already learned this in Deuteronomy chapter six. Listen to the similarity between Deuteronomy six, where we find the Shema, the prayer that the Jewish people pray every day. Listen to the similarities between this and Proverbs three, five. It says in Deuteronomy 6.1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Sound familiar? Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is your midst, in your midst is a jealous God. Right? Does it sound familiar? It's almost like Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3 is repeating things he's learned from the time he was a child that we have to trust in God, that we have to put our faith in Him, that if we put our faith in Him, all will go well with us. But when we deviate from that path, when we start to think that the cisterns in our life, we dug ourselves when in fact God provided them for us. When we start to think that our houses are filled with things that we provided for ourselves as opposed to recognizing that God provided those, then we lose sight of who God is. The writer to Proverbs says in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 3, he's saying, my son, don't forget this most essential principle. If you're gonna understand wisdom, you have to be rooted in your trust in God. You have to be rooted in your view of God, in your faith in God. And though the word faith isn't used here, the understanding is absolutely the same. The promise is sure that when we trust him, when we lean on him, when we acknowledge him in our ways, then our crooked path becomes straight. I want to look at exactly what that means. It says here in Proverbs 3, 1 and following, my son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Look at this in three. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. It sounds similar to what we read in Deuteronomy chapter six. This idea that you wanna keep steadfast love and faithfulness with you. And I've read some people who look at Proverbs three and they go, well, this is an admonishment for us to, to continue in steadfast love ourselves and in faithfulness ourselves. And while that's true in, in one sense, I would want to point out that when the writer is saying, don't forget steadfast love, bind steadfast love and faithfulness to you, what he's actually referring to is not our own efforts to be steadfast in our affections or in our efforts to be faithful, but he's referring to God. God is described. In fact, God describes himself as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God talks of himself and says, I am a God of steadfast love. I am a God of faithfulness. So when we look at Proverbs 3, And it says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. He's saying, remember who your God is. Remember this God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Bind it around your neck. Carve it on the tablet of your heart. I think it's worth stopping just for a second this morning and asking yourself, who who is carving on the tablet of your heart today? Who do you allow to write into the tablet of your heart? We get this picture. It's a word picture of our heart being a surface that can have things imprinted upon it. Our heart being a tablet, they can have things carved into it or written on it. Who's writing on your heart? Is our culture writing on your heart? The opinions of others perhaps defining you and writing upon your heart? Who is it that writes upon the tablet of your heart? Because I think for many of us, we turn on the news and we get a little panicky. We look at our bank account statement and we get a little panicky. We think about our relationships. We think about the world in which we live. And we're allowing all of these different pressures and all of these different voices to carve things into our heart. And what the writer here says is, look, if your heart is a tablet, the only person you want to have carving on that sucker is the Lord Jesus. 
a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Allow that to be what shapes you. Allow that to be what defines you. Allow the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to be the thing that is imprinted upon who you are at your very core. He says, bind them, bind them around your neck. We saw in Deuteronomy chapter six this idea of binding the truth of God to our foreheads and to our forearms. If you go to Israel and you go to the Wailing Wall, you can meet these Jewish men who have the hats and the forelocks and the, you know, they've got a, a little phylactery strapped to their forehead and they've got them strapped to their wrists. And if you can find one of those men that will talk to you about what they're doing, They'll explain to you that what I've done is I've, I've taken Deuteronomy 6 literally and I've bound the word of God, the truth of God, to my forearm and to my forehead. I want to keep it between my eyes all the time. But what the writer is saying here is not necessarily that you have to put a little, a, a little decoration on your wrist or on your forehead, but allow the truth of who God is to actually imprint upon your heart. Carve into who you are. Bind steadfast love and faithfulness around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. It comes to verse five, and this is part of one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. But the first section here in verse five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? It was funny, uh, I was sitting at the kitchen table last night with my kiddos, and they were asking me what I was gonna teach today. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm teaching uh, about the, the, you know, the wisdom of faith. I'm teaching out of Proverbs chapter three, verse five, where it says, trust in the, and I couldn't, I got those three words out. Trust in the, and then my kids are like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on it your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path, you know? And I'm like, okay, great. We all, we all know it, right? Most of us know that verse, but here's what happens. When something becomes too familiar, it loses its power to shock you. It loses its power to stir you. I have said to my son so many times, check your blind spot, check your mirror, turn around when you're backing up. And he replies, I do, I am, I have, I already did, I've done that. I'm like, but you, you're backing into a tree, you know, whatever. But there's a point at which you've heard the reminder so much that it stops to really feel fresh to you. It stops to feel like the admonition it should be. And here Solomon is looking at his son, or he's looking at young men, and he's saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does that mean? Do you trust in the Lord with all your heart this morning, church? Do you even know what that means? For many of us, when we think about trusting in the Lord, we think of sort of uh, acquiescing to certain biblical doctrines, right? Do you believe that God is a trinity? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he rose from the dead? And you go, yeah, 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 I believe all the right stuff. I can win at Bible trivia and check all the boxes, and so I do, I trust in the Lord. No, 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 it's not just believing that God exists or even believing that Jesus has the power to extend resurrection life by his grace. The Bible teaches that even the demons believe that God exists and that he has power, but they're not trusting in God for anything. They're not trusting in him. They don't have faith in God. That's a whole different thing. Faith is active. In fact, in our study in the book of Hebrews, right, again and again in Hebrews, it talks about this faith that is the coupling of what you know with action. So when I look at you this morning and I say, do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? The answer to that can only be found in looking at your actions, Hebrews chapter 11, verse one says this. Hebrews 11, one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, verse four of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. You can go on, and we studied this not too many months ago. You can go on and see a long list of people in the Bible who by faith did things. It doesn't just say that by faith they knew stuff, but by faith they moved. 
And they offered, and they constructed, and they pleased God, and they sacrificed. By faith, they did. Let me ask you this this morning. If you're one of those who would be tempted very rapidly to go, yes, I trust in the Lord with all my heart, let me ask you, how how would you finish the sentence? By faith, Darren, what? Showed up at church on Sunday morning? By faith, Darren opened his Bible twice this week. By faith, Darren was nice to his neighbor when his neighbor pulled out of the garage. Maybe those are the answers. But when we look at the scripture and it says by faith, we're talking about people who lived a radical life because they trusted in God, a life of adventure and a life of perceived risk by the rest of the culture around them. They weren't settled in. God never looks at someone and says, hey, I want you to trust me and just sort of coast for the rest of your life. I'm calling Moses, I'm telling you, I just want you to settle into Midian and build yourself a nice house with a wraparound deck and make sure you put a fence on it so none of the neighbors ever wander in and just relax, man, by faith, relax, Moses. God never does that. God always says, get up from the place you are, forget about the stuff you have, forget about the things you've held onto so tightly, turn them loose and follow me over here, I got an adventure for us. Hebrews 11 says, by faith they offered, and by faith they gave, and by faith they went, and by faith they sacrificed, and by faith they died. So when you fill in your name and you say, by faith, Julie, what? By faith, Michael, what? By faith, Nick, what? Many of us don't have an answer because we haven't truly been trusting in the Lord with all our hearts. We just sort of been believing that God exists. Trust in the Lord. Here's a definition for you. I believe that trusting in the Lord with all your heart is believing that he is able, which has to do with his power. Believing that God is able, that he is wise to do what is best, he is good to his core, and that he is present and available to you. Present and available, present and aware. Believing that God is able, believing that he is wise to do what is best, that he is good to his core, fully present and aware. Have you ever had a good mechanic? Like, have you ever had a, a mechanic that you trusted? Some of you may be mechanics. You might be going, I'm a good mechanic. Prove it. Uh, here's the thing. There is nothing in the world like having a mechanic you trust. It's the best. You finally stumble across that little auto shop, and you realize that the guy that runs it or the lady that runs it, that they're not trying to take as much money from you as they can, that they're not trying to do work on your car you don't need done, that they're not trying to scam you, they're not trying to you know, pull any shenanigans. When you find a mechanic you can trust, it's the best because you realize that they have the power to make changes on your car, that they're wiser than you are, that they're good to their core, and that they're aware of your situation and available to you. That is the best. Because most of the time when you go to an auto shop, the guy looks at you and he goes, well, your, your, uh, your catalytic converter is compressed. And you're like, well, I don't know what any of those things mean, but that sounds terrible. Yeah, it's terrible, and you're gonna, it's gonna cost you $4,000 for me to look at it, you know? And then I'm going to look at it and I'm going to just affirm to you again that it's compressed. And then to get it out of there, that's $6,000. And all the other pieces of your engine are going to break when we take that thing out, right? And so that's going to be $25 million. And you're like, I don't, I'm not sure this is true. You know, like, I don't know if, can I, is there like a second opinion? But when you find a mechanic that looks at you and goes, look, you have a, you have a problem with your catalytic converter and it's going to cause you some problems eventually, but you can drive it for another six months as long as you don't mind being broken down the side of the road. Or I could fix it for you and I could put a brand new one in there, but I've got one in this other vehicle that I could switch over and it'll save you about 200 bucks. Like, isn't that the best? 
When you find somebody that knows more than you, that has more power than you, who actually cares about you and is available to you. That's the best. It's, it's great with mechanics. It's great with doctors. When you have a doctor you trust, it's great when you have a dentist you trust and he's not just trying to pull out teeth because he's got some sick fascination with pulling out teeth, right? I've known dentists like that where I'm like, you're just pulling that out because you like it, right? Weird. <laughs> trust in the Lord with all your heart. Why? Why do we trust in him? The Bible says, in fact, in Proverbs 14, 12, and again in 16, 25, it says there's a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that makes sense to us. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. The end of the way that makes sense to us kills us. We cannot trust in our own hearts. We cannot trust in our own experience because our experience will let us down. We can't trust in our own emotions because sometimes our emotions mislead us. We can't trust in the wisdom of the crowd because sometimes the crowd is wrong. We can't trust in popular opinion We can't trust in our bank accounts. We can't trust in our physical health. We can't trust in our influence or our power. All of those things will fail you eventually if they haven't failed you already. None of those things can sustain you. So why do we trust in God? Because he's the only one who is good and wise and powerful and present and loves us, right? We lean not on our own understanding. There are lots of verses in this, in this book, in the book of Proverbs, that talk about the trust we can place in God. I'm gonna go through them rapidly. Here's a place you can write some of these down. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. You feel afraid? You feel fearful? Proverbs 29.25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. How's that sound? He rests satisfied. Does that sound like your life? I don't know many people that rest satisfied in anything. There's very little rest for most. Very little satisfaction. We're always hungry for more. We're always anxious to get more. But it says, he who trusts in the Lord. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Proverbs 10, 27 says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 21, 31 says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. What that says is, we do have to equip ourselves. We have to prepare. We have to be preparing the horse for battle, if you will, to use that illustration, right? But ultimately, the victory is dependent upon the movement of God, not upon how well we prepare our horses. We prepare our horses, but victory is God's alone. Why do we trust in him? Because he's a strong tower. Because we can find rest and contentment, satisfaction. God can be trusted. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. With all your heart. I will tell you um, that for most of us, I think we tend to trust in God kind of like an 80-20 split. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, no, 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 I trust in God. I trust in God. I mean, yeah, I trust that, you know, there's all these people going on a mission trip and God's gonna use them and, you know, but I, I mean, you can only take that so far. Many of us, we trust in God, but we keep sort of a, an escape route. You know what I'm saying? We got a backup plan. Can I tell you today, if you got a backup plan in case God doesn't come through, you don't trust God. If you got a safety net that is your own wealth or your own influence or your own power or your own likability or what, if you've got a safety net that is your trust in mankind or popular culture or whatever, in case God can't be trusted, you don't trust God. Because what it says is trust in the Lord with all your heart. We're talking there about reckless abandon. We're talking about risk, we're talking about adventure, we're talking about danger. 
all your heart with complete abandon. No backup plan, no hedged bets, no safety net. It's so funny to me. We believe, like most Christians, you talk to them and they go, well, you believe that Jesus is God incarnate. Oh yeah, God came to the earth in human form. He took on flesh and he takes the sin of the world upon himself. You believe that? Yeah, I believe it. Jesus takes the sin of the world. He dies on the cross, buried, dead, but he doesn't stay that way. He rises from the dead and he extends by his grace resurrection power to those of us who are lost and dead in our sin. You believe that? Yeah, I believe it. Jesus, God of the universe, creator of all things, comes to earth in the flesh, takes on sin, dies, rises from the dead, and then extends resurrection life to any who will believe. Wow, I believe that too. You believe that? Yeah, I believe it. Well, do you believe that that God can make a difference in, in your neighborhood through you? Well, no, right? Do you believe that God has a purpose for your finances? Do you believe that God has a purpose for your love life? Do you believe that God has a purpose for putting you in a workplace where you're surrounded by people that maybe don't see things the same way you do? Do you think that God has a purpose for stirring certain things in your hearts? It's so funny to me that we, we trust in God for the cosmic sort of universal power, but we don't think God has local power, right? Oh no, I think he can rise from the dead. I just don't think he can make a difference in my marriage. I just don't think he can make a difference in my parenting. He can do the big stuff. I'm not sure about this little thing. I'm not sure that he can use me to reconcile people together. I'm not sure that he can help me care for the poor, those who are being treated unjustly. I'm not sure that he can empower and equip me to go and and be an ambassador of reconciliation and justice and hope and love in a broken world. No, 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 I think he can raise people from the dead. (laughs) All right. But he, he can't use me, not locally. It's so crazy to me. Psalm, Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 37, verse five. says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord, it says, with all your heart. Not only that, it says then, back to Proverbs chapter three, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I wanna make it clear that the Bible doesn't have a problem with understanding in general, right? You might go, oh, that's anti-intellectualism, right? That God doesn't want us to have understanding, so I'm just gonna stay stupid forever. That's not what it's saying. In fact, the overwhelming message of the Bible is it's important to get understanding. I could read you a bunch of these. Uh, Proverbs 2, verses 2 and 3. Make your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. Uh, it also talks, in, I think, in 3.13. Chapter 3, verse 13, about understanding. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Proverbs 14.33 says, Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Proverbs 16, 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The Bible's not being anti-intellectual. It's not saying that understanding is wrong. It's saying don't lean on your understanding, right? Don't lean on your understanding, the way that makes sense to you. Your colloquial wisdom, your experience, your emotion. Don't lean on your understanding, why? Because it's a crutch that can't be trusted. Because if you lean on your own understanding, it's only gonna be a moment or two before you find yourself on the floor. Your understanding cannot support your weight. It can't support your weight. It says actually in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26, Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. 
Tim Keller said something similar. He said, it's interesting, if you look at the whole of of the book of Proverbs, that uh, the wise people know they're foolish in some capacity, but the fools think they're wise. He goes, what that tells me is, if you think you're wise, you're a fool, right? That's, That's pretty clear. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. No, it says, lean not on your own understanding. Don't count on your own understanding to support your weight. So where do you lean? You lean on the understanding of God. That's why the overwhelming testimony of Proverbs is, call out for understanding. Seek understanding like treasure. There's no problem with understanding. It's just knowing his understanding that matters. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen, right? Where should we lean? Not on our understanding, on his understanding. How do you find his understanding? You find his understanding in his revealed word to us. He said some things to us, right? You know that. He's revealed his word to us in in the scriptures. He speaks to us through his spirit in our inner being. God speaks to us through the community, the body of Christ. God is speaking We have to listen to his understanding and make it our understanding, to lean on his understanding, to be dependent upon that. And you can say, oh, I do, right? Just like Jack or whoever says, oh yeah, I do look in my mirrors, I do check my blind spot. But again, what you believe is proven by how you live. You wanna know whether or not you're leaning on your own understanding, take a look at your life. When's the last time you consulted God's word with, with the everyday instances of your life? When's the last time you looked to what God had to say about your marriage or about your family or about your vocation or about your future or about your money? When's the last time you consulted God? If you haven't consulted him, then guess what you've been leaning on? Somebody else's wisdom. Oh, I've just been at camp for a week, so I wanna play a game with you really fast. That, that, that will, uh, it's, it's a camp game, but I think you guys will like it. Uh, the way you guys play is you, uh, you close your eyes And so close your eyes really quick, and what's going to happen is I'm going to count to three, and when I get to three, I'm going to throw my shoe as hard as I can at one of your faces. (laughs) Oh, man, kids love this game at camp, and so we're going to play it right now. Yeah. (laughs) Steven, you catch it. Ready? Uh, Close your eyes. No peeking. I see you peekers. Knock that off. Close your eyes. I'm going to count to three. I'm going to throw my shoe as hard as I can at one of your faces. Get ready. One. Keep them closed, you cheaters. You Christians are all alike. One. Just kidding, ready? Two, three! Okay, look, yeah, okay, all right. Look, I can't, you can't be throwing shoes in churches in America. You get sued for that kind of stuff, you know what I'm saying? We live in this uh, litigious society. If I threw a shoe, I would be decimated uh, rapidly by lawyers and attorneys. Um, but can I tell you what happens? Look at how good I tie my shoe. This is like a Mr. Rogers moment for all of you. Um, I'm really good at this. This is one of, the, one of my skills. Something really interesting happened when I got to three. Let me tell you what happened when I got to three. When I got to three, there's all kinds of stuff that happened. For some of you, when I got to three, you flinched, right? Some of you put up your hands. A couple of you ducked behind your wives. Nice work, right? (laughs) Dirty, right? Dirty. But when I got to three, there was movement, right? There was movement in some some areas. There was movement because you believed that I could hit you and that I was going to throw a shoe. And so that provoked movement in you, right? Your belief... 
Your trust in me that now has been exhausted, right? Your trust in me provoked action. And your trust and your leaning on the understanding of God provokes action in you. At the same time, when I got to three, there were some of you who didn't move at all. You just sat there with your arms folded. You just, you know, you're just kind of breathing. You're all practically asleep already, and you just kind of kept in the nap, right? But that is still a byproduct of your belief, right? Because if you didn't move, if you didn't put up your hands, if you didn't duck, then you didn't believe I was going to throw it, or you looked at me and assessed that I don't have the physical strength to actually get it to you, and even if I could get it to you, it wouldn't hurt, right? What you believe dictated what you did in that moment. Can I tell you, look at your life. You want to know whether you trust the Lord with all your heart, whether you're leaning on your own understanding? Well, look at your life. What do your actions say about that? It says, thirdly, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him. We talked about this around the counter last night, too, at the house, and uh, I said to my kids, I said, what, what do you think that means, in all your ways, acknowledge him? And they're like, you know, just like make sure you, you like say thanks to God, you know? Like you, maybe you put like a, one of those stickers on the back of your car that says, he is greater than I, or you know, what, like a fish, or something, just like, hey, when I'm driving around, God is awesome, you know, whatever. And I'm like, okay. But, but that's, that's, I mean, I think the image many of us get when we says acknowledge him in all our ways, the image is like of the soccer player, uh, World Cup, by the way, is happening, you know, the soccer player who kicks the goal and then goes, yeah, points to heaven, right? <sighs> that's not a bad thing, but that's not what that passage is talking about. It's not talking about, hey, after you do what you're gonna do, then give the glory to God. No, no, no. The, the word here that's translated acknowledge could just as easily have been translated know him. In all your ways, know him. Or even still, it could be translated, defer to him. In all your ways. In all your ways. You see, there's a recognition for those of us who are disciples that we have to be paying attention to every moment. That every heartbeat presents an opportunity for God to be glorified in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds and attitudes. I think sometimes we make this division in our life where we go, well, because I'm not a pastor or because I'm not a missionary or because I'm not a seminary professor, then my life is just a secular life. I'm just a carpenter or I'm just, a, I'm just an attorney or I just sell insurance or I'm a stay-at-home dad or stay-at-home mom or whatever and my life doesn't matter and God doesn't really have anything to say about what I'm doing because I'm just an architect or whatever. All of that is wrong. The lines that we have drawn dividing the sacred and secular must be eradicated. You have to get rid of them. Because every moment of your life, every breath and every heartbeat is a redemptive moment. It holds potential for the glory of God. And so in every word I speak, in every place I go, in everything I do, when I'm pumping gas or I'm buying cereal at the grocery store, I need to be knowing God in that moment. I need to be aware of who he is, recognizing the fact that he put me on this planet, that he created all things with a purpose, that he's put me into whatever context I'm in for one purpose, and that is for his glory. And so how do I glorify him in this? How do I glorify him in pumping gas? It's a good question for the disciple of Jesus to ask. How do I glorify him in my stay-at-home parenting? How do I glorify him in my teaching at school? How do I glorify him in my architecture? How do I glorify him whatever? The way I play softball. The way I drive my car. It says, in all our ways, acknowledge him. That's not something we do post-activity. It's something we do pre-activity. Does that make sense? We acknowledge him. We're aware of We know him. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. 
that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Faith in Proverbs chapter three manifests itself in humility, in sacrifice, in discernment, dependence, patience, and progression. Here it is. Trust in the Lord, verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him or defer to him. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is what God created you for. Verse nine, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The one who's living in the wisdom of faith is sacrificial and humble and dependent, acknowledging that God is able and that he's wise to do what's right, that he is good to his core and that he is present and aware of our circumstances. And when we put our trust in the Lord, when we lean not on our own own understanding, when we acknowledge him or when we know him in all our ways, then it says in verse six, he will make our paths straight. He'll make our paths straight. This is important. This is where we'll finish this morning. God doesn't give us wisdom and he doesn't produce faith in us for us just to sit on the wraparound porch in Midian. You know what I'm talking about? There's a path. There's a path. There's a journey he's calling us all to. There is movement and progression that's indicative of the life of faith. Let me ask you, when's the last time that God spoke to you and he called you to something and you obeyed because you trust him with all your heart and you don't lean on your own understanding and you acknowledge him in all your ways? When's the last time God spoke to you and you moved? Because I think that for many of us, we've kind of settled in to a ho-hum existence. I think we've kind of settled into an existence where no trust is necessary. We don't need to trust in God. We trusted in him when we were 17, right? We trusted him when we were 20, but now at 44, I don't really need to trust him because I can kind of take care of myself. And so my life becomes a plateau. It becomes stagnant. There is no precedent in scripture where God calls people to stagnation. There is no precedent in scripture where he calls these people, hey, have enough faith in me to never grow or change or risk or give or sacrifice. Just trust me enough that you can stay exactly like you are for the rest of your life. God never calls people to that. He calls us to move ahead on the path, a path that's straight, a path of righteousness and a path that heads towards his intended purpose, which is relationship with us and his own glory. So what's the forward movement of your life look like? When's the last time you trusted God for anything? When's the last time you stopped leaning on your own understanding? When's the last time you acknowledged him in your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes in every redemptive moment of your day? If we live like that, there'd be a radically different church. We'd be a light on a hill. We'd be a beacon to this city and to this neighborhood and to this country because then we would start to live radical lives. Radical, faithful, adventurous, exciting lives like our heroes from the Bible. You know why their lives were exciting? You know why we like to read their stories? Because they lived a life of faith on the straight path that God made for them. Not that they never made mistakes, but they also never just hunkered down and went, you know what, I believe the right things and that's enough. No, if you believe the right things, they will provoke you to action. Where's God calling you to move? What's God calling you to do? What does trust look like in you today? Would you pray with me this morning? God, I need this message as much as anybody in this room because the temptation is ever present to just hunker down, to lean on my own understanding, to lean on my own experience, to lean on my own emotion, to lean on the the colloquial wisdom of others and to stop listening to your call. But God, we wanna live radical, 
faithful lives. Lives where we trust you with all our heart, not just 80%. Lives where we stop leaning on the crutch that can't support our weight, our own understanding, but we look for your understanding and we make it our own. And lives where we acknowledge you, where we know you, where we defer to you in every moment, in every breath, looking for the way and the reason why you've put us in every circumstance we're in. We want to live lives of adventure as we follow your call. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.